James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Uh, I'm not going to do a lengthy dissertation on uh, you know, how this epistle came to be, who wrote it, what the purpose of it is. I'll just make a couple of remarks and we'll dive right in. Uh, it's my firm conviction and the majority of textual scholars would agree with this, that the author of this book is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, which, I mean, there's a sermon right there because if you've been through the Gospels, then you know there was a time when, uh, as Jesus was claiming deity, his family did what you should do when you have someone in your family claiming deity, and they came and tried to take Jesus away um, because they didn't believe that he was the Son of God. And uh, the fact that James comes from that place all the way to the place where he is a pillar in the church in Jerusalem, writing to the saints who are scattered, is quite remarkable. It is very possible that this is the first epistle written in the New Testament, just chronologically. Um, it was likely written about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the intended audience, he makes it clear, this reference to the 12 tribes and the dispersion is not actually the diaspora or the dispersion, I don't think. The way we think about it in terms of those who had been exiled from Israel during Babylonian captivity, I think he's talking about a new dispersion where um, in Acts 7 with the stoning of Stephen begins a persecution of the Christian church which forces the disciples to actually do what Jesus commanded, and that is go into all the world making disciples and baptizing them. But it's, it's persecution that kind of pops the zit, as it were, of the New Testament church and forces them out so that instead of this concentration of Pharisaic Christianity, you have this living, breathing, vital church that spreads through the known world and some would argue, in fact, finds its center in Antioch rather than Jerusalem. So his audience is those who were dispersed as a result of that persecution. Um, why would we study this epistle? Why, having finished with Galatians and all of the corresponding uh, struggling and difficulty that that epistle carried, why would we not, especially for a guy who preaches narrative texts much more efficiently than he preaches didactic or teaching texts, why would we go to James? And I'll be honest with you. Uh, the primary reason, the number one reason that I decided we should go to James is because you were all referencing it in your mind when I was preaching Galatians anyway. That might be projection, but I suspect that I'm right. There's this thing that happens when... When I'm swinging open the door to licentiousness by saying things like uh, the law does not exist as a means of you keeping it for sanctification, 
you think, what about in James 2 where he says faith without works is dead? So I'm like, well, we need to steer into that and just go deal with it. Unfortunately, it's probably going to take us at least a month and a half to get there. Uh, So we're going to deal with everything else that's here as well. Second, this epistle is odd. It doesn't really have a theme. In fact, I view James as kind of a New Testament version of Proverbs. You go from idea to idea to idea to idea, but like the Proverbs, it's very helpful because James sits, you know, right in between Hebrews and 1 Peter as kind of a lamppost that shines this light in the darkness of a New Testament existence. And I think every Christian needs help seeing clearly. Amen? And then a baby church certainly needs wisdom and how we ought to conduct ourselves. And James offers a treasure trove of practical wisdom for a church in its infancy. Uh, And then third, and this is the hardest thing to say out loud, the third reason that I think we need this epistle is because we are going to suffer. We just are. And I don't do you any favors by pretending otherwise or insinuating uh, that that, that the Bible somehow diminishes suffering for Christians. Um, We need to face this truth head on and, and I think cultivate the tools to endure suffering with grace so that we're not ruined by it. Does that make sense? All right. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We'll work through this as, in as organized a fashion as I know how. Count means consider, um, reckon, suppose. Uh, joy is delight or gladness of heart. I've tried as hard as I can to make a New Testament distinction between happiness and joy. And I think I might be manufacturing a distinction that doesn't exist. Because we want as preachers to be able to say things like, even when you are filled with sorrow, you can still have joy. And I think in a sense that's true. Unfortunately for me, as the preacher and the teacher, the words happiness and joy mean the same thing all throughout the New Testament. There's not really a definitive distinction. So joy is delight or gladness of heart. And then check this out. Trials of various kinds are trials of different kinds. (laughs) That's what that means. So we start with this accounting question. To understand what James means by the verb count or suppose or consider, right? Count it all joy. Count. So this has to do with how we're going to evaluate the thing. Look at it and evaluate it this way. How do you inventory your heartbreaking circumstances? How do you inventory your heartbreaking circumstances? Listen. This is amazing. It's so profound. And I didn't come up with it, so you can enjoy it too. Uh, Miseries are sweet 
or bitter, depending on how we view them. That's Thomas Manton, a Puritan. Miseries are sweet or bitter, depending on how we view them. Do you agree with that statement? You don't have to answer, but I would ask you to consider it. Are miseries sweet or bitter, depending on how we view them? Or are they, are they miserable? Or are they both? Can a misery be made more miserable by viewing it with bitterness? And can it be made more bearable by viewing it with some sweetness? So I'm going to give you three rules to judge your miseries rightly. I could probably come up with more than three, but it seems like that's the limit of human cognition in this kind of environment. So as you're writing them down, know that there are three, and each one has a dozen or so subpoints. First, do not judge by your senses. Hebrews 12, the writer is talking about discipline. And in verse 11, he says this, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay? For the moment, when you're in it, discipline from God does not seem joyful. It seems miserable. But the Bible is careful to say that's how it seems. That's not how it is. So I take from that that you cannot judge your circumstances with your sight, smell, taste, hearing, or touch. There is something about the human senses that tends to view discipline and trial wrongly and therefore derive a wrong conclusion about its sweetness or bitterness. When you're in pain, there's nothing sweet about it. So you've got to judge it by something besides how it feels to be in pain. So don't judge by your senses. Your senses are present things. God's promises are eternal things. Don't judge by your senses. This does not mean that we abandon our senses and follow our emotions until they resolve into magical happiness. Yeah. It means that we do this instead. Are we going to judge our circumstances? Yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm saying let's not judge it with our limited temporal senses. Let's judge it instead by a supernatural light. When you're living and moving in the darkness of painful circumstances, you cannot see clearly. Correct? Okay. When you're angry, do you make great decisions? When you just got dumped, uh, are you properly evaluating all of your relationships? Probably not, especially not those with the opposite sex. When you are sick to the point it feels like of death, 
Are you properly evaluating what the likelihood of recovery is? No. When you're miserable, living and moving in the darkness of painful circumstances, you cannot see clearly. So we've got to cultivate the discipline of viewing things in the light of the gospel. Hence, Romans 8, 28. Everybody knows Romans 8, 28 because you've had it flung at you in previous struggles and possibly even resented it. But that's to your shame, not your credit. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. More on this as we go along, okay? But I'm telling you, we have to judge in light of the gospel. Second, by the way, first was don't judge with your senses. And then the second two things are how we should judge, right? So the second way we should judge or the second thing overall was, or the first way we should judge and the second thing overall was judge in light of the gospel. So if you have an outline, you just wrote, don't judge with your senses, and you wrote, judge in light of the gospel. And then the second way that you judge, but the third thing overall is you must judge on supernatural grounds. Whatever looks hopeless, worthless, or pointless from a human perspective, uh, picture yourself with feet of clay standing on the earth. That's what you are. That's what I am whatever kind of shoes you're wearing, you have feet of clay and you're standing on the earth. Whatever looks hopeless, worthless, or pointless from a human perspective needs to be weighed, have its depth taken, and value estimated in view of a resurrected Savior. The third thing I told you was you've got to judge on supernatural grounds. The second thing I told you was you've got to judge in light of the gospel. And the first thing I told you was don't judge with your human senses. When you're in a miserable situation, you have to take the value of the situation in view of a resurrected Savior. The value of a sorrow and the possible outcomes of a sorrow change when. The value of a sorrow and the possible outcomes of a sorrow change when death is no longer the end of the story. Do you hear me? What I'm going through and its value to me changes when death is no longer the end of the story. If death is the end, then what we've got to do as human beings with our feet of clay on the earth is pursue the greatest ecstasy possible for a human being, which is probably going to be found in psychedelics or mind-altering alter, altering substances, right? I mean, there's a limit to what you can achieve without mind-altering substances as far as enjoyment goes this side of eternity. But when you realize, wait, 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 there's more after this. Death is not the end. It changes how you view this, doesn't it? You all seem confused. We'll keep pressing on. You'll get it. 
Isaiah 61, verse 1. Let's look there together. This will wake everybody up. Shake out the cobwebs. I bet many of you have forgotten uh, already, just because of the presentation of the opening of this epistle, that the end of this sermon is going to come quite abruptly. And you never know when it is. And you might find that you didn't start paying attention in time. (laughs) Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Let me say this again. The value of a sorrow and the possible outcomes of a sorrow change when death is no longer the end of the story. What Isaiah 61 is describing has its fulfillment in measure by Luke chapter 4. When, well, I think it's Luke 4. We won't worry about it. When John sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one, are you the Messiah, or should we expect another? And Jesus quotes this passage and says, go tell John, the blind are given sight, the deaf are given hearing, the mute are made to speak, the prisoners are being set free. And let John decide if I'm the one. But it has its ultimate fulfillment, Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, has its ultimate fulfillment in this, the promise of eternal life for those of us who exist in the here and now, in temporal, broken, or breaking down bodies that don't really do what they're supposed to do and definitely don't do what we want them to do and are filled in our lives with experiences that break our hearts. The value of that heartbreak changes when you view it in the light of the fact that there is a life to come. So we've addressed counting and considering. Now we must address joy. He said in James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Um, In Philippians, the apostle writes and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay? How are we doing with that? How's it going? How's counting it all joy when you encounter various trials? How's that working? It's not the first time you've stumbled across James 1 verse 2. You've seen this before. I didn't just introduce it to you. You knew it existed. There's a directive here, right? And so... If you hadn't just been taken, oh, 
magnificently by the Holy Spirit through a study of the book of Galatians, you might be tempted to see here a directive that you are failing to uphold and thus judge yourself as probably unconverted because you don't have joy in all of your circumstances. But thankfully, that's not us, right? Because we've been through Galatians and we know that there's no way the Bible is telling you to count it all joy because that's how you'll earn your salvation or how you'll be sanctified. Do not be ashamed of your sorrows. In Psalm 56, David, and I believe it's while he's scribbling on the walls outside of Gath and foaming at the mouth, trying to trick the king into believing that he's a madman. David reflects on this and and writes, in Psalm 56, he says, you have taken account of all my wandering. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now, uh, you might be tempted to think, oh, God keeps track of my tears so that he can punish me for them because I wasn't counting it joy when I encountered various trials. But I assure you, my dear legalist friend, that is not why he keeps your tears in a bottle and keeps account of all your wanderings. In Psalm 51, 17, David writes and says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Wait, let's hear it again. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. Does God hate it when you're not joyful? Does it make him mad? Is God up there going, you faithless wretch? How can you not be filled with joy over this cancer diagnosis? You faithless wretch, how can you not be filled with joy over your divorce? You faithless wretch, how can you not be filled with joy over the loss of a child? Is that the heart of God? Or is he keeping count of all your wanderings, keeping your tears in a bottle, and pleased with a broken and contrite heart. So joy then must be present alongside sorrow, not instead of sorrow. It must be that both of these things can have their existence at the same time or it's gotta be one or the other, right? More on this again as we go along. Various trials. What's a trial? You think about it. I'll give you the dictionary definition. What is a trial? It's a test of the performance, qualities, or suitability of someone or something. That's a trial, a test of the performance, qualities, suitability of someone or something. Fair enough, okay. Let's define it contextually, shall we? What is a trial in the life of a child of God? How about this? 
I came up with this all on my own. So I'm telling you that so that you might feel more free to disagree with it. Okay? That's not bragging. That's me being like, it's okay if you think, no, that's not it. That's not the definition. A trial is an experience of difficulty which applies pressure to your expectations, hopes, and contentment. A trial is an experience of difficulty which applies pressure to your expectations, hopes, and contentment. Does that work? An experience of difficulty which applies pressure to your expectations, hopes, and contentment. So then, is bodily sickness a trial? Well, it is when you planned on doing something meaningful today, last night, when you were going to bed. Tomorrow is the day. Here's how I'm going to seize it and make use of it. And then the morning comes and you awake long before the sun, realizing this is not going to be the day after all. Something is dysfunctional here. My body has betrayed me. It's not working like it's supposed to. Yeah, a bodily illness is a trial, especially the ones that go on and on and on and on and on. If you don't have any experience with that, I pray that you never do, that you ought to have some sympathy or empathy for those that do. Is persecution a trial? If they come and shut us down and arrest me, for preaching the gospel, will we view that as a trial? Which one of you will step up in my place? It has no bearing on this sermon. I was just curious. <laughs> Is financial trouble a trial? So you're telling me, if you go down to the boats and blow your paycheck and can't make the mortgage, gambling, that's a trial? Yeah, yeah, it is. Now, you might be losing some of your comfort because it's your own evil that produced the trial, but it's still a trial. It's a various trial. Is a kid going bananas a trial? Yes, we're in the season uh, where I have to be regularly instructed on all that is right and correct by somebody who has one quarter the life experience that I do. It's, it's not that bad, but it's a trial. It's also one that I remember visiting on my own father. Is a spouse going wayward a trial? Oh, yeah. What about injustice at work? You know of people getting paid more than you to do less than you? That's a trial. Is the consequence of your own sin a trial? Is age and the recognition that your life has not turned out the way that you had hoped it would a trial? Man, is it. I will never forget when I got the invitation to move to Nashville, live with my guitar teacher and write songs with him for a living, and I turned it down. I'll never forget it. 
And I turned it down because I was pretty sure I would do that at the cost of my soul. But as a result, now, instead of being a Grammy award-winning songwriter, <laughs> look at me. It's pitiful. The hair I probably could have afforded. <laughs> it's a trial. When you, when you reach this place in life and you go, man, it's not what I thought it was going to be, and I don't have the resources to make it what I thought it was going to be. I don't even have the time anymore to make it what I thought it was going to be. That's a trial. A lot of fellas go out and buy a yellow sports car. Or red. Is loneliness a trial? Frank? Doug? Trish? Marie? Yeah. James? Yeah, it's a trial. Is a leaky roof, broken water heater, broken car, broken toy a trial? I'll never forget the height of my insensitivity as a father came when Sam's uh, red potion jar got broken in the driveway. Now, I know it's a $3 bottle from Hobby Lobby filled with, I don't know what it was, something red, to represent Link's health potion from the video game Legend of Zelda. That's not how he viewed it. It was an essential prop in his play in the enjoyment of life. And it shattered in the driveway and he's out there weeping as though I had died <laughs> in the driveway. And I was so ashamed of the show that he was putting on and embarrassed by him I didn't respond the right way. Well, that's, I lost sight of the fact that when you're little, it doesn't take much for your trial to overwhelm you. Is the silence of God a trial? Is landing in the consequences of your own sin and selfishness a trial? Well, <clears throat> do all of these things apply pressure to your expectations, hopes, and contentment? Yeah. Do not judge with only human senses, but judge with supernatural light on a supernatural basis in order that joy may be present alongside sorrows in which you experience pressure against your expectations, hopes, and contentment. Why? What reason do we have for cultivating cultivating this discipline. Verse three, if I have a stroke in front of the congregation, would that be a trial? Verse three, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Oh, okay. All right, let's pray. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness? Okay, I believe him because it's the Bible, but help my unbelief, amen? Yeah. Testing teaches us to bear afflictions with hope and perseverance. God tries us through these things 
To help us appreciate what the word of God is telling us, consider five things. First, God's purpose in your afflictions is not your destruction. God's purpose in your affliction is not your destruction, but your purification. When we come to Christ at first, we are mostly or, O-R-E. Or is just rock mined out of the earth that has some precious metal in it. But in order to get the precious metal, you got to heat it up and melt it into liquid. And then the refiner who's heated up that metal in the crucible into liquid, scrapes off the stuff that floats up to the top. Guess what floats up to the top? Not the good stuff, the garbage, the dross. A refiner will scrape the dross off the top again and again in order to remove all of the impurities. So what happens to us when we're in a trial? Two things. First, unsurprisingly, the garbage floats to the top. That's been my experience. Second, unpleasantly, the garbage is removed. That's the design of the trial. Trash comes up, trash gets scraped off. Zechariah 13, 9 says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. And they will call upon my name And I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. That's the outcome of God putting us in the furnace. When when we're all done in there, we're going to say, that's my Lord. And he's going to say, that's my people. Psalm 66.10, you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out into a place of abundance. It does not feel good from a human perspective to be in God's furnace. So we see the importance of judging with a supernatural light and on supernatural grounds. Right? Because it doesn't feel good. If we don't judge that way, if we don't judge in supernatural light, like in the light of the gospel and on the grounds of Christ, then we will wrongly conclude that the purpose of any difficulty we go through is God's destruction of us. That's the design. God is fed up with me and wants to take me out. We will doubt the love of God because of the trial rather than be assured of the love of God because of the trial. Remember from earlier, Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment does not seem pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Second, (coughs) excuse me. The time of trial is appointed by God, not man, and therefore is not the random result of human machinations. So first, was the purpose of the trial is our purification, not our destruction. Second is, the time of trial is appointed by God, not man. Look right at me, because this is important. No trial ever happened, no matter how much it might look like it, because some person designed it, ever, ever in history. 
your boss, the government, your teacher, your parents, they are secondary causes of your circumstances. God, listen, God takes responsibility and he will not allow anyone to take it from him. Well, that's a dangerous thing to say to anyone who's really suffering, is it not? You're saying I should blame God? I'm not saying you should blame God. I'm telling you he takes responsibility. No blame is necessary. Malachi 3, verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Famously etched in the wall of the prison, Auschwitz, I believe, was a statement from one of the prisoners there that on judgment day, God was going to have to deal with this person's wrath. Well, the Bible would disagree with that. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Okay. That's interesting. Because that means, I just think this is so helpful. You don't get tossed into the crucible while God goes and attends to other tasks. What the Bible just said is, the Lord sits by his fire, tending that which he is refining. So he's the one scraping off whatever rises to the top. He is deeply interested in the outcome. The trial is meant not only to prove and approve, but to improve. And you'll say, that sounded a lot like the first point. And I'll say, it's the same thing. I just had to say it again because we already forgot. What was the second point? The time of trial is appointed by God and no trial ever happened because of human machinations. God sits by the furnace, wields the file and swings the hammer because he's deeply interested in the outcome. Finally, the object of improvement Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The object of improvement is your faith, not your circumstances. I'm really sorry to have to tell you that. I wish I could say, hang in there. It's all going to get better. Oh, wait, I can say that. The object, the outcome of the trial is the improvement of your faith, not your temporal circumstances. In 1 Peter 1, 6, 
he says, we might be done at any moment. Remember that. Okay? This sermon could end right now. Pay attention. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Oh, that sounds the same as James 1, 2, and 3, right? You've been grieved, if necessary, for a little while by various trials, so that the, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We work by love, but we live by faith, and we die without it. Amen? We live, we, we, we live, we have our existence by faith. Now, the things that I do, I do in love with, with a pure heart, with the goal being instruction and help and edification of other people. But my existence, how I get out of bed again tomorrow, it's not like, oh, because my wife will be so delighted to see me again. Oh, because my boss will be so thrilled when I show up again. The thing that gets me up is faith. And the thing that gets me through the day is faith. Not in this life. Not hope in this life. We work by love, we live by faith, and we die without it. It makes sense then that God would want to improve our faith. Because he said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus warned Peter about a trial. Do you all remember this? Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, just like I would have, don't worry, Jesus, I'm ready to go with you to prison or death. Wildebeests couldn't stop me. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. All right, those, only those of you familiar with this history, answer this question in your own mind. Did Peter fail the trial? You're like, oh, it's a trick question. It's not a trick question. Did he fail it? Yeah, he got tried. A little servant girl came up and was like, hey, aren't you, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter goes, filth and foul, no. That's a pretty monumental failure. What rose up when Peter was put in the furnace? Trash, garbage, dross. What did Jesus pray for Peter? Hey, Simon. Satan has demanded to have you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus did not pray that Peter might not fail. He prayed that Peter's faith may not fail. 
How many of you have come through a trial before? Out the other side, having failed so breathtakingly that people that observed it were left wondering if in fact you're even a Christian. Yet when it's over, there are things that have been combed out of you so that you emerge from the trial trusting better that Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith than you did before. Did you fail? Yes. Did he? No. So three questions in order to review and cement these things in our minds. First, are we going to encounter trials altogether now? Yes. Yes. How do we judge these trials? We judge them by supernatural light on supernatural grounds. By judging in the light of Christ and judging on the basis of what he accomplished. Remember what I said. These things are going to have a different value to us if we look at them in the light of the gospel. When death is not the end of the story, it changes the value of what you're going through in life. So look at the cross and note that it's vacant. And look in the tomb and note that it's empty. Because he overcame all that. And now the promise is, You're going to have to suck it up and go through whatever you're going through. And you're going to fail. And it's going to be embarrassing. Because the garbage floats to the top. And you're going to have to confess it and repent. But the cross is empty and the tomb is empty because Jesus has victory. And so your victory is not assured by how magnificently you handle your trials. Your victory is assured by how perfectly he defeated even death. Third, what is God's purpose in our trials? The improvement of our faith in Jesus Christ. 